conductive wire And you were so electric I had no say when you came so near And just passed right through me Hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is Back. I am your host, Deanna Chapman, and joining me for episode 150 today is Drew Deach. We're talking all about Batman Returns. Drew, I know you didn't really know beforehand that this was going to be episode 150. I honestly didn't know either, but you know, (laughs) I don't want you to feel any pressure on this one. No, I mean, no pressure. In fact, that just makes me more excited to to be here to talk about this movie to to make such a, a landmark. So congratulations on 150 episodes. Thank you. It does not feel like I've done this many of them, but apparently I have. (laughs) I know that feeling. Yeah, I was thinking about it. I was like, oh my goodness, I have edited so many podcasts when you factor in this one, my music podcast, Misalign, that I did for just over 100 episodes. I had a short-lived sports podcast that was about 30-something episodes, and Chat Cemetery is coming close to approaching episode 50. So that's a lot of editing. And that's not even counting editing I do for podcasts that aren't my own. (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) it's all just piling up. Living the podcast life. (laughs) (laughs) But what we are really here to talk about today is Batman Returns, which is the 1992 Batman film. And it is the sequel to the first Tim Burton Batman movie. So we have quite the cast of characters in this one. And I'll be honest, I haven't watched this too many times. I watched it semi-recently for the first time in full that I was aware of anyway. And then I rewatched it again before recording this. And it was one of those movies I was like, you know what? I can just see the Tim Burton oozing off of the screen with this movie, but it's a fun time. It really is. Yeah, uh, it's it's interesting. Um, Batman Returns came to be. This is kind of the long story short version of, you know, Batman eighty nine was an enormous success at the time of its release. It eventually became the fifth highest grossing film of all time, and the studio wanted more. And Tim Burton didn't really want to come back and do Batman. Uh, but he decided to under the condition that he was like, if I can do whatever I want, if you give me an incredible amount of creative control, I will come back and do this. And the studio agreed. Uh, they basically let Tim Burton really turn the Batman mythology into a Tim Burton movie. And because at that point, Burton was easily one of the highest profile directors in the filmmaking world, it was allowed to kind of be way more of a Tim Burton movie than maybe necessarily a Batman movie. Uh, And I think we can talk about that as we get into the story and characters and stuff. But I will say that I think Batman Returns is possibly the Batman movie with the clearest and kind of most interesting vision to the character, uh, the, the other iterations, I think, while they certainly have their visions, I, I don't know. There's something so unique. I like you say, it's like this is it's impossible not to see Tim Burton oozing out of every corner of this movie. Yeah, you really just have this darkness in Gotham, but then you have these colors that pop, you know, like Penguin's duck that stands out so much, the duck mobile, <laughs> if you will, and really what they did such a great job with. And don't get me wrong, this movie has its flaws. And I think quite a few of them lie with how Catwoman was handled. And, you know, it's kind of hard because this is a movie from 1992. So you have to look at it through that lens. And then you have to look at the fact that have we ever really had a great Catwoman on screen? I mean, honestly, having watched Gotham, I was like, you know what? I kind of like that version of Selena Kyle the best so far. Well, I've, I have not seen Gotham in its entirety, so I, I can't speak to that. But that thankfully has the benefit of being a television show and having way more time to develop oh, yeah. characters. Um, this Catwoman, I mean, it, this Catwoman was so definitive a version of the character for so long. And I think it's important to note that the screenwriters on Batman Returns were 
well, specifically the screenplay is credited to Daniel Waters, who most people will probably know writing Heathers, okay. which is a very dark teen comedy. Yeah. Um, Sam Hamm, who worked on the first Batman, uh, Tim Burton Batman, has a story credit. But Daniel Waters is clearly interested in taking these things to very dark, uh, satirical levels. And Catwoman, I think, is very much portrayed in that light of of a a dark satirical character and to the point where batman returns really dips its toes into realms of horror and fairy tale that i think mainstream audiences are were not going to be as accepting of in a rock'em sock'em superhero action movie like batman uh because when i saw this as a kid you know, I, I didn't know about the uh, controversies about it being too dark. And, you know, I, I think there was a planned McDonald's Happy Meal deal with Batman Returns. But when they saw the movie, they pulled the deal uh, because it was just so grim and awful. Um, the thing that stuck out to me as a kid that really scared me and freaked me out is after Selena Kyle is pushed out a window and... Mm-hmm is left for dead by her horrible boss, Max Shrek, played wonderfully by Christopher Walken. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people read the scene as she is resurrected by cats. I never read it that way. I just read it as like a bunch of cats come to feast on her because she's a dead, you know, she's food. Yeah. And then she just happens to, you know, revive. But the scene when she comes back to her apartment and she has this mental breakdown And she starts destroying her apartment and, like, shoving her stuffed animals into the garbage disposal. I remember that scene as a kid really scared me. Yeah, because what you had already seen of Selena Kyle was totally different from that moment. And, you know, with the cat scene, I agree with you. I was kind of like, no, because one cat is definitely just straight up nibbling on her finger. Like... (laughs) That's the grossest shot. It's it's so tiny and not violent, but I always remember that being really gross to me. And you just see a little bit of blood on the tip of her finger. I'm like, these cats are just trying to eat her. Yeah. And then she wakes back up. It's kind of like maybe the cats trying to feast on her ended up infecting her. And that's how she ended up with these cat-like abilities. And then we see more of that thief mentality that Selena Kyle has from the comics. And it was one of those things where I was like, okay, you know, I've already seen this. And I was a little higher on it the second time around because I was like, you know what? I'm just going to sit here, look for some of these details like the cat chewing on the finger and see if I like it a little more the second time around. And sometimes movies do take time to grow on you. And with how good this cast is, I was like, wait, why didn't I like this quite as much the first time? And I think a lot of it had to do with the Catwoman storyline because she isn't used to the best of her abilities, especially with Michelle Pfeiffer in the role. We've seen what she can do, and it's funny now that she's in the Marvel Universe (laughs) versus the DC Universe. And to me, I was kind of like, okay, you know what? Michael Keaton as Batman, I buy it. Danny DeVito as the Penguin is just too hilarious to not enjoy. And like you said, Christopher Walken was just so fantastic in the role, even if it's a Tim Burton movie and it does go over the top a lot. Well, it's a, I mean, his his clear inspirations, I think, emotionally and visually for the art design of the movie is rooted in German expressionism, which is, you know, old silent films like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. It's all this very exaggerated, uh, you know, sharp edges and architecture. And also, I think, in the performances, like there's I think this movie is so well visually acted that you could turn the dialogue off and still kind of understand what's going mm-hmm. on uh which i which i think is a compliment um in, in regards to catwoman it's interesting because instead of taking the you know comics canon and it just being that she is a cat burglar a thief selena kyle ends up being used as an interesting anarchic force against consumerism and capitalism yeah. like the the whole movie's set around christmas and I don't think that's just because Tim Burton likes 
Christmas imagery and <laughs> yeah. snow. I mean, he obviously does, and he's he's attested to that. But there is this commentary about consumerism and capitalism. Like she, the first time she goes out as Catwoman, she goes to one of Max Shrek's department stores and just wrecks it and blows it up. Um, obviously, as an act of vengeance against him, but also as kind of this. I don't know. I, I there is definitely a warped dark feminism to Catwoman in this to, to the point where she when she first stops the typical guy mugging a woman in an alley she has to say you know you always think some Batman's going to come and save you I'm Catwoman hear me roar which is a, a funny line but her I, I love the image of her in the department store whipping the heads off of female yeah. mannequins like I'm like ooh that is loaded imagery and I like it um but yeah, I think the cast all around, uh, Michael Keaton, I think, gets a little bit more to do in this than uh, in the first one. He's not as overshadowed by his right. villains. He, he still is, um, but not to the degree that Jack Nicholson overshadowed him in, in, in the first one. But Danny DeVito as the Penguin was definitely one of the biggest, I think, uh, targets of contention for audiences at the time because pop culture is only ingestion of the penguin as a character had been kind of Burgess Meredith on the 60s shows very campy you know just kind of talk like a penguin the penguin in this is a mutated monster of a character who is also given a, a fairy tale opening of his parents you know his super rich parents finding him so horrid that they dump him into the the river um and and Danny DeVito's performance is just so good in this that the fact that the the Stan Winston makeup that they did, which is yeah. phenomenal, that entire getup is great. The fat suit too. <laughs> oh, everything! It's a wonderful uh, creature creation. But the fact is, Danny DeVito never gets lost in the makeup. His performance is never hindered by the makeup or the suit or anything. He actually uses it in really fun ways uh, to enhance his performance. I think it's a it's wonderful as much as this movie, I think it's railed on for, oh, by the end of it, the penguin is bleeding black green goo out of his nose and, you know, has all of this horrible stuff going on. I think it's a pretty enjoyable character. Oh, absolutely. And I think for me, one of the most cringy moments, I guess you could say, came when Catwoman paid Penguin a visit. And he was just like making so many advances on her. I was like, really? You think this is what she's here for? <laughs> There's a really, dis- uh, it's funny because the entire plot with the penguin involves him uh, eventually getting wrapped up into politics and wanting to become mayor because he's being manipulated by yeah. Max Shrek because the current mayor isn't uh, going to be, isn't on the side of Max Shrek putting his new power plant into Gotham. And Shrek feels like, hey, here's this figure that I can manipulate uh, for public opinion and turn into mayor to get what I want. And one of the big <laughs> one of the big uh, kind of influences that Shrek gives to the penguin is that he will b- have access to lots of beautiful women. That's not the way he puts it, but I'm not going to repeat yeah, that particular yeah. line. Uh, but yes, the, the, the penguin, that entire sequence where he first meets Catwoman is you know just dripping with a bunch of sexual jokes and stuff like that um i i do like that catwoman is clearly obviously not here for that she asserts herself (laughs) and and i love the scene of her putting the bird in her mouth yeah which is just so gross and i'm i think I don't know for sure, but I think the scene where she opens her mouth and it comes out, I think Michelle Pfeiffer did that. Honestly, that probably wouldn't surprise me just because it felt like this movie was pretty rooted in practical effects. And I think it's just because of the time period. Obviously, you have some things that couldn't have been quite as practical, but you have tons of explosions and things like that. And I think the way the story was written for this one, you have a lot of opportunities for things like that, just because of how many of the Penguin's goons are sort of like 
circus freaks, quote unquote, there. And right. they are doing gymnastics. You you know, you have Michelle Pfeiffer or her stunt double just sort of flipping around everywhere and, you know, doing cartwheels and back handsprings and all sorts of gymnastic moves. And you have a lot of other characters doing those things too. So they probably got a bunch of extras who were capable of doing all of that. And it just made it so wacky and entertaining at the same time. And, you know, story-wise, I really like what they did with the villains here because you have these two villains who have very different motives, but ultimately both want to get rid of Batman. And so you have them team up and you also have Max Shrek, who is sort of the mastermind behind everything, even though he tries to get rid of Selena Kyle multiple times <laughs> throughout this, you know, he fires her, pushes her out a window and nothing works. He even shoots her multiple times and she's still not dead. And I think the way that Tim Burton was able to bring this all together worked really well for the tone they were going for with this story. Yeah. I, I like that. This is always, I think, a challenge that writers have to tackle when dealing with superhero movies that have multiple villains is how do you make these villains align properly uh, to antagonize the hero? And for the most part in the majority of the movie, Catwoman and, and the penguin are working independently. They get together for a plan to stop Batman because Batman has been, fouling up their plans, but they're mostly independent. And, you know, even after their plan succeeds, they have a falling out. But the real villain of the movie is Max Shrek. The Penguin and the Catwoman are both painted fairly sympathetic. I mean, Catwoman is wholly sympathetic. I don't think the movie ever really passes any big negative judgment on her. The Penguin has has the darker thrust of the story in that... His grand plan is to eventually get revenge for his own uh, discarding as a kid by kidnapping the firstborn children of Gotham and drowning them. Uh, Incredibly dark. But even the ending of the movie, you know, the beginning of the movie sets up sympathy for the penguin and the ending of the movie treats his death very sympathetically. But Max Shrek is an outright bad guy. There is no sympathy given to him. He is, you know, when he pushes Selena Kyle out a window and thinks he kills her because she discovered the secret behind his new power plant. And she shows up again. He's talking to his son and he says, you know, if she tries anything else, I'll have to push her out of a higher window. Yeah. It's like, yeah, this guy is cold hearted and literally there's nothing to like about him. And Walken is just having a blast playing that kind of no nonsense cutthroat corporate evil. But yeah, I think the story is handled fairly well. I think the the better elements of the story have to do with Batman's relation to Catwoman and the Penguin individually because he finds similarities in himself between them. Burton talked about during conceptualizing this movie that he was like, I have three main characters that all of their symbols are totemic animals a bat a cat and a penguin and he was like what do i want to play off of that totemic idea in relation to each other and i think batman sees eventually you know in catwoman someone who is leading a very similar dark uh even psychosexual lifestyle that he is engaging in in his nightly outings um In Penguin, he sees somebody that, you know, especially early on, he sees someone like, hey, you know, that could have been me. He came from a rich upbringing and he wants to know who his parents are. I understand that. I kind of have some baggage with my parents. Um, So I like the the way the story is able to play the relationship off the characters and then, of course, discover certain things. Um, Probably my favorite character scene is Bruce and Selena as they're starting to develop a, a relationship, they go to uh, Max Shrek's masquerade ball, and during the ball, they realize that each other are Batman and Catwoman. Yeah, and it's a it, it's a really damaging emotional moment, 
and Michelle Pfeiffer has to deliver the line. Does this mean we should start fighting? And and I like the confusion of that and in regards to their separate identities and their own feelings about each other. Like, I like how complicated and messy that is. Yeah, you also have this struggle with Selena that entire time, because when we meet her, she is the executive assistant. And it's clear that she is smarter than one, she's letting everyone believe and mm-hmm. two, that everyone thinks because, you know, she's just the executive assistant. What could she possibly know? So she uses that to her advantage later on when she does really find out what Max is up to with the power plant. And you have this contrast later on too, when he is talking with Bruce and then Selena waltzes in and he's not expecting her. But you have the contrast in the sense that Max and Bruce are similar with how much power they have in Gotham because of how much money they each have. Mm -hmm. But their personalities and the way they go about handling business are just so drastically different. Obviously, Bruce has people who do a lot of things for him because he's busy being Batman. But in that moment, he's the one going to this meeting and he's like, you know what? I'm going to push back on this because I don't think this is what Gotham needs. So you have this guy who largely in the comics isn't too present at his own company, but he understands Mm -hmm. what it is that Gotham needs when it doesn't need Batman. Yeah, and and I I like that him and Selina eventually, and I'm specifically assuming Bruce Wayne and Selina Kyle, not Batman and Catwoman, are kind of stuck in this position of like, well, we're both obviously very interested in each other and we both kind of hate your boss. Um, that's that's their uh, kind of meeting point. But where the movie goes, like in that masquerade ball scene, Selena is there to kill Max Shrek. Right. And and she says, you know, it's like if 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 I, you know, kill him, then all of this is going to be OK. And that's in immediate contrast to Bruce's morals and his feelings um, about about the situation. And by the end of the movie, I like that Bruce and Selena, once they're, you know, have their final confrontation, you know, he's saying, like, we're the same split right down the center. And Selena says, like, I would love to live with you in your, you know, castle, just like a fairy tale, but I couldn't live with myself. Like, there is this fierce independence that she gains after her attempted murder to a point that maybe it is uh, so extreme that it becomes self-destructive, but she is not going to bend or cower in the presence of, of any male figure ever again. Um, and, and it's played very, very, very melodramatically. And and I don't mean that in a negative criticism. I mean it in kind of the big broad strokes that you see in fairy tale story structure. Like it has to be big to get the message across. And I don't know. I, I, I think everybody is on the same page as far as that goes, as far as the kind of movie they're making. Um, but but one thing I always find myself having to defend about this movie are people that say it was too dark. Obviously, that was the consensus. The, you know, the movie they made after this Batman Forever uh, went a very different direction. And <laughs> Yes, to say the least. <laughs> yes. I mean, they clearly were like, we, we can't make anything too dark. And then we got that, and then people seemed to want to go back to a darker, you know, grounded, gritty Batman with the Nolan films. And I'm I'm always a little taken aback by the, you know, it's too dark and gloomy argument with Batman Returns. I'm like, yeah, it's it is, but it's also a movie whose one of its climactic sequences involves an army of penguins invading <laughs> Gotham City with yeah. rockets on their backs. Yeah. Like eh? <laughs> It's one of those things where, personally, I like the dark movies, and I feel like that's something that is pretty inherent with most 
Batman stories in general, because you have this character dressing up as a bat, which is already a dark suit to begin with. At least the current versions of it are much darker than the original. And just his whole backstory, and even in this, Penguin's backstory, Catwoman's backstory, you know, these aren't happy endings for these characters. And I think they all go into it knowing that, you know, maybe the penguin gets his hopes up that he's going to have this happy ending, but Batman is able to thwart that. And Christopher Walken sort of just walks away from Penguin as this is happening. He walks off the stage, just straight up (laughs) leaves him there by himself. And in that moment, you're kind of like, okay, we already knew that Max Shrek was a horrible guy. And when you break this story down, it's actually a pretty simple story that revolves a lot around greed. When Penguin is told what he could have, he gets greedy and just wants everything that Max told him he could have. And then when it doesn't go his way, you know, he tries to get back at everyone. And he has this whole underground army, literally the entire movie. I don't know how he gets so many of them because Batman takes out a lot of them. You would think they would be down for the count for at least a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, they they have the nice backing of the Penguin kind of grew up with a, a, a circus gang. And so he just has this giant gang of circus people uh, at his disposal. But but I like your your point about the movie being about greed, because I think that's even reflected in Batman and Catwoman, but their greed is not material right. as, as it might be for Penguin and Shrek. Catwoman's greed is that, you know, her motivation for revenge only gets, you know, bigger and greedier as it goes on. And I think Bruce has an emotional greed by the end of the movie because he believes that, he can have Selena to himself and still be Batman and everything can be okay. And it's like, no, that's the life that you guys have chosen is not going to allow for that. And to assume that it is, is being emotionally greedy. Which is funny given that Bruce mentions Vicky, if I'm not mistaken, and how that whole relationship didn't work out. And it's like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. They, they kind of treat it in a, in a passing line of dialogue about, I'm not the one who let Vicky Vale into the Batcave um, to Alfred, yeah. <laughs> which is great. But yeah, I I, I find that, that the movie is more richly thematic and that a lot of that uh, those thematic elements are showcased visually. Uh, I, I like that a lot because I think that's something superhero cinema has kind of gotten away from as, as superhero cinema has focused more and more on direct character relations uh i think it's easier for characters just to say the themes of things and how they feel than to try and represent that cinematically to audiences and it's not a matter of one approach being better than the other it's just i i like when movies can do those things without having to use dialogue um you know like the the fear of batman plays into the movie after a certain point because Penguin and Catwoman decide to frame Batman for the murder of uh, the Ice Princess, who is this super you know, ditzy, brainless kind of model that's, uh, you know, touted out for the Christmas celebration. And so when they they not only frame Batman by having it appear that he pushed her off a roof, they also have when her body lands on this plunger thing, which is pretty cartoonishly horrific a bunch of bats explode out of the giant christmas tree that they're lighting and it's like ah that's that's cool i mean uh that's a cool visual thing to do to establish the fear of batman in a scene because they have in that moment that somebody just looks up and is like look batman push the ice princess and that's all you could do but having that extra element adds some visual flair and i think there's just so much to the visual flair of this movie that for my book, I think it's the most interesting and best looking of any of the Batman movies on film. I think because you have Tim Burton behind this too, you're going to get a drastically different visual than you do in the Nolan movies. And, you know, personally, I really enjoy Batman Begins and 
the Dark Knight, the Dark Knight Rises less so. But I think that's kind of the general sentiment of the Nolan trilogy there. And with this one, the visuals are just so strong because of this world that Tim Burton has built up. You know, Gotham almost looks like this jagged city because of how the buildings are displayed and designed. You kind of get this feeling like, oh, okay, this is the kind of city we're going to. And it's funny because when I was discussing The Running Man for Chat Cemetery, I mentioned how they sort of made that dystopia kind of look grimy and gritty like Gotham, Mm -hmm. even though we know Gotham isn't a real city, so to speak. But in this, with all of Penguin's goons, you get that sense. And there were just some nice little visual touches that I really, really enjoyed. And one in particular came to mind as soon as I saw it, and it was after Selena destroys her apartment. And you know how she has the neon sign in her room that says hello there? Yes. After the fact, when it's just framed and she's standing like in her window, it just says hell here. And I was like, that is so, so fantastic. And, you know, it's one of those things they clearly thought out well enough to where once she takes out the T and the O, it would just fit perfectly in that frame. Oh, the, the that shot of her, you know, that entire sequence of her making the costume, I love. But that shot from outside of her apartment looking into the window and you just see that hell here neon sign and her coming into frame perfectly silhouetted like you know you can't see any features on her but it's just the silhouette of the Catwoman costume that's the kind of visual iconography I love about comic book characters and and especially in film and, and that I think that has diminished somewhat in in modern cinematic versions of these characters is is that you can cut a silhouette with some of these characters and create a mood even before they say anything and and i think that shot is one of the best examples of that certainly in batman returns and and maybe in the entirety of superhero cinema it's also the perfect introduction to her as catwoman you know, we don't need this close up and all of these details of her stitch work on the suit cuz we saw you know, that section where she was clearly putting it together. So just to have that at a distance and have that turn out the way it did, it was so great. And you have that other moment too, when you have the bat signal going up for the first time in the movie, and then it kind of like bounces off of mini bat signals <laughs> at the yeah, manor. Yeah, the reflectors. <laughs> yeah. And then it comes through this window that is the perfect size for it. And you get sort of this shoulder up shot of Bruce and he's standing there with, you know, the bat signal in the background. And I think that's another shot that a lot of people remember from this movie because it's like, okay, you know, we just have him from the shoulder up. He's not even suited up or anything. And there's the bat symbol just larger than life on one of the walls in the manor. I I love that whole sequence for so many reasons. Um, Like you're saying, the imagery, it's it immediately with no dialogue. It's like, I get it. You you don't even have to. What what I really like about uh, a lot of, you know, the pre Nolan Batman movies is you don't have to have seen any of the other movies to enjoy the the Batman movie that you're watching. Like Batman Returns. You could just see Batman Returns and understand what's going on. I mean, that that is our introduction to Bruce Wade. He is just sitting in his study library. In the dark. <laughs> brooding or whatever he's doing. Like, no dialogue. And then those giant reflectors, which I, I love that because it's just such a, like, play set idea of, of set construction. Um, I, I, I dig that so much. Um, and then coming in and seeing... The bat symbol, oh, you know, projected on that wall. I even like they show that, but then they also cut to a a shot of him from the side and from a distance, a wide shot of him walking towards the window and us seeing the bat symbol kind of distorted on on the wall of his yeah. bookshelves and stuff. It's like ah, it's 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 such great imagery. And again, like you see that immediately you know exactly what you're in for and the kind of mood and history that kind of imagery brings with it. It's it's great stuff. I already mentioned earlier the fact that Penguin has his little duckmobile thing too, which is just 
iconic in the way that sort of the goblin truck in Maximum Overdrive is. It's like you can't really take it seriously, but it's this thing that really sticks out. And you have another moment later when his goons take control of the Batmobile and he's in his, you know, like mayoral van RV type thing. And he just has sort of this like kitty Batmobile ride that you would see outside of a uh, grocery store or something. And I love it. I love it it's so just much. It's so funny how much the entire van is shaking <laughs> when he's doing that. And you get a quick glimpse of that and you just can't help but laugh because it's so ridiculous. And because the penguin is so big and he's like in this kitty toy like thing you're just like this is so over the top but it makes perfect sense for who this character is yeah i mean even the you know them adapting certain elements from the comics and the television show that people are familiar with like oh the penguin has trick umbrellas so his trick umbrella scene that we see him where he's like oh he's got one with a a a blade in it and another one with a a flamethrower and then he has one that you know, has this big spiral and we hear this theremin hypnotizing music and Max Shrek is like, what is that supposed to do? Hypnotize me? And Penguin's like, nah, just give you a splitting headache. <laughs> and, and then pretends to shoot him and he's like, ah, it's just blanks. Uh, and then later when he's going to have his, as he calls it, pied penguin routine, he has the umbrella that's kind of like a, a, a crib mobile with all the different like little toys dangling on it. And he's like, you know, I'll do my pied penguin routine and lead the kids into this horrible toxic waste river to drown. But then later when he's trying to fight Batman, he goes to grab an umbrella and he picks that pied penguin one. He's like, I picked the cute one. (laughs) So it's it's funny and it's bizarre and dark um, in so many ways. But that's why whenever people their go to criticism about this being too dark and you know, too awful. I'm like, it's, it's actually, I think it is that it is dark, but it's not joyless. And it's not like so straight faced and serious as not to understand how to have fun with itself. I, I think, and, and, and Danny and I talked about this, talking about, uh, the dark Knight rises on our show. Third times the charm. We, um, talked about that by the time you got to that entry in the Nolan series, there were inescapably silly things about Batman that you just couldn't avoid. And they contrasted with that take on him as something so grounded and serious. Whereas Batman Returns is is a movie that kind of knows how to play both ends of the spectrum, being super dark and grim, but also accepting the inherent silliness of a concept like Batman and his and his different villains. Right. And I think Batman Returns really pulls that off. And I don't think it gets enough credit for pulling that off as successfully as it does. Yeah. Another thing, too, is that these Tim Burton Batman movies really began this new era for the character. I don't think the Nolan movies would exist in the way they do without having these films come before it, because going from Batman 66 to this, it is a drastic change. And it's campy in a sense, because a lot of the things that happen in here are pretty over the top. The set pieces are amazingly done for that, though. But it's not as campy as Batman 66, because back in 66, you couldn't get away with the stuff that you can get away with in the 90s or late 80s, or even now, Mm. especially now. (laughs) And you've been able to see this character evolve over the years. And it's like, everyone has their Batman. And I think that's something that's really great. And it also helps with keeping the legacy of all these different Batman movies alive, because there are people who grew up with Batman 66, and Adam West is just their Batman. There were even Batman movies in the 40s, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know anything about those mm-hmm. because... Yeah, the, the movie serials yeah, they did. And, yeah. you know, like I said, I don't know anything about those. I can't really speak to those. And so you've had this character that has been on screen for so long that to have this many different versions of the character 
it's actually refreshing because you aren't just rehashing the same thing over and over and over again, even though admittedly I could do without another Batman origin story for a while. <laughs> oh, yes. I don't think we ever need to see his his parents die on camera ever again. Um, that's literally in like, I think... I think I think Batman Returns is the only movie that doesn't show that. Probably. <laughs> um, I know it's in pretty much every other version. Um, one of the reasons I've always loved Batman and have loved the character more growing up is that it's a character where, I, like you say, everybody has their version of Batman. But what's great is that Batman has gone through so many iterations and different takes that the character has shown how malleable he is, um, that you can do that, that you can have something like Adam West 66 Batman and Batman Returns be equally valid versions of the character is kind of wonderful to me. Oh, absolutely. I think something that uh, bums me out a little bit about where superhero cinema has has landed and where it's continually headed is that more so now we want to see on film kind of the textbook perfect versions of characters you know we want the definitive spider-man we want the definitive captain america and while i understand the appeal of that and it's not that that mode of thinking isn't successful it clearly is very successful i think it limits our chance to have creators come in and do their take on a character and and batman returns is very very definitively tim burton's take on the batman mythos just as much as as batman forever is joel schumacher's dif- like his take on batman and it is quite the take <laughs> yeah and, and i mean and same with nolan and all of them i i like the idea of takes that somebody can come in and say i just want to do what i want to do with this character i'll pull what i like about the mythology and the characters that I want and discard what I don't and just be concerned with making this one movie. The the other thing is the singularity of it. Like I say, you can just watch Batman Returns. You don't have to see Batman 1989 or Batman Forever. Uh, It's it's not it's a movie that works completely unto itself. It's not setting something else up. It's not, you know, trying to pay off what came before it. It works on its own. And more and more we're seeing you know, that people want that continuity and that interconnectivity in superhero cinema. And then that if you're going to have that, I think it means that then the entirety of superhero cinema has to align to very specific visions. And it's harder for characters to do things that might color outside the lines of that particular vision. And, and that's why I think Batman Returns still maintains kind of a contested spot in the legacy of Batman on film is because it colors very far outside of the lines of what people might think of when they think of a Batman movie. But I like that. I like that it's allowed to be its own thing in in every way. Like it's it's its own self-contained story. It's its own very unique riff on the characters. It's got its own mood and tone and artistic style that separates it from any other Batman movie. Right. I, I, I really, the, the the older I get and the more superhero cinema has become mainstreamed and cemented itself as such a big part of event cinema, I find more and more that I want superhero movies that feel very singular and feel very much like this is one person's very clear vision of a character. Right. And, and that's what Batman Returns is. The only real reason it's even considered a sequel is simply because Michael Keaton returned as Batman. You know, the two don't really have anything to do with one another. And I'm in total agreement with you. You do not have to watch the 89 Batman in order to understand what is happening in this movie, especially if you're already familiar with Batman, you don't need that origin story placed in here because you probably already know it. And it's funny, I've mentioned this a couple times now, probably, but when I was attending WonderCon earlier this year, I went to one of the panels for Batman's 80th anniversary. And one of the speakers, it was Joel Jones, who is 
a comic book writer and artist, she said, you know, everyone is kind of born knowing who Batman is. And in a way that seems true because the character has been around for so long. I cannot honestly recall when I first learned about Batman. I just always remember Batman. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that even though the, the Marvel characters have been around for a longer time, they haven't had as prominent a place in pop culture until kind of the last decade or so, uh, you know, Batman and Superman came around, you know, in, in the thirties, um, and they've had a longer time to just ingrain themselves into popular consciousness to where, you know, Batman and Superman's origins are basically kind of American, you know, biblical mythology at this point yeah. <laughs> where you, you just kind of know it. And, and I agree. It's like, yeah, we don't, we never need to see Krypton exploding and, and, Baby Clark Kent landing on the Kent farm, you know, uh, baby Kal-El, I'm sorry, uh, landing on the Kent farm. We don't need to see Batman's parents walking into the alley of that movie theater and getting shot and the pearls dropping down on the ground. It's become so ingrained in our pop culture consensus that I think that... It's common knowledge. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just nice to see... A Batman movie that that doesn't have it hanging over its head like it's not a movie that is you know kind of dwelling on that origin story it informs the character like I said when Bruce first sees the Penguin having his press conference on TV about trying to find out who his parents are him saying like I hope he finds his parents I'm like I understand the weight of that feeling from Bruce intrinsically yeah plus we have the fact that more Batman movies are still being made. So it's one of those things where when I watched Gotham, I was a little more forgiving of the origin story because this is Bruce Wayne as he's growing up and it's not him as Batman necessarily. So that was taking a different approach to the origin story because what we've seen in the movies is the alley scene, Bruce goes away and then he comes back and he's Batman. And that's sort of the gist of the origin story almost every time we see it. I wouldn't say it's exactly like that every single time because Batman Begins does give you a little more meat to that story. But you have this thing that has become common knowledge to anyone who pays attention to pop culture in the slightest. You know, I know people who do not care for superhero movies at all, but they know who these characters are. They know who Batman is. They kind of know why he's Batman. And it doesn't matter that they don't pay attention, they don't watch the movies, they still know this fact about this fictional character. And Batman has such a long legacy that even within each of these iterations of the character, those versions build up their own legacies. And I think Tim Burton's Batman has definitely done that because, you know, like I said, this movie came out in 1992. So this movie and I were born in the same year, pretty much. And we're still talking about it today. Yeah. And and one contri uh, contributor that we, we didn't mention that I do think is so important to the legacy of Tim Burton's take on Batman, and I think is even better utilized in Batman Returns, is composer Danny Elfman. Yes. Uh, the, the Batman March from the 1989 film was... And still is considered the Batman theme. Right. Like the piece of music that has defined the character for, you know, now 30 years. Um, and of course, that returns in Batman Returns. But Elfman's also given a chance to create themes for the Penguin and Catwoman. Uh, I think they're both really good. Catwoman's theme is one of my favorite pieces of Danny Elfman's entire filmography music. Um, it's so beautifully tragic and kind of creepy uh the penguins is appropriately kind of squat and and uh very heavy on on brass and everything but i th i think the music in batman returns gets to be more lyrical you know you'll hear a lot of that stereotypical danny elfman choral stuff in batman returns um but i think it's beautiful and i and i do think that Tim Burton's take on Batman, more so I think even in Batman Returns than the first one, has been a defining take on the character, has been one that exists in its own world. Um, and, and I think Batman Returns, like for me, Batman Returns is the Tim Burton Batman movie 
I'm way more drawn to and revisit more. Um, that's not to say Batman 1989 is a bad movie by any means, but Batman Returns is the one that interests me more from the filmmaking decisions yeah. to the art direction to the story. I think it's just got a, a lot more going on there. I'm in total agreement with you on the Danny Elfman work on the soundtrack and the composition because he's done a ton of film work over the years and his stuff with Tim Burton always stands out. It's like they were a match made in heaven for this kind of stuff. Oh, it's, it's, I mean, it's clear from the number of times they've collaborated that they just, they're on the same wavelength. Which is fantastic for those of us who get to experience this all the time just by watching and rewatching these movies. And, you know, I, I think we've covered quite a bit here, but before we, wrap things up, I do want to just quickly talk about our ratings for this movie because I had mentioned in particular that I changed mine after watching this a second time. The first time, I gave it a three out of five. I don't know if it's that if that was because I was really hung up on sort of their treatment of women in the movie and giving it another watch, I was like, okay, you know, they did have some great ideas here with Catwoman. They did have, like I mentioned, that cringy scene with Penguin. And you see where it's coming from, but it's still one of those things that makes you uncomfortable to watch. So I did end up bumping my rating up to a four out of five after watching it this time because I was like, you know what? A lot of these details I really, really enjoyed. Just like the framing, more of the cinematography and the shots that I noticed. I was like, yeah, this is really good. (laughs) Yeah, as as far as ratings go, um, I'm I'm sure on Letterboxd, if I have this rated, I, I have it as a five out of five because yeah, I think you do. I've written a piece uh, in the past that described this as the best live action Batman film. Um, my my favorite Batman film of anything is Batman: Mask of the Phantasm. Yes. So good. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I adore that movie, and I think it's I think it's the best Batman movie because it's the Batman movie that best explores batman to me and is not it's it's amazing that he's not overshadowed by the villain they're on pretty equal footing and interesting footing that but that's that's for another day um but batman returns i think is is the best live action batman film for for a lot of the reasons that i mentioned and also because i think it's the riskiest batman live action film that's ever been made it's clear that to to the point where the risk didn't pay off in a lot of ways that Audiences didn't want to go down this kind of darker fantasy route with the character. Um, But I think the production design, the performances, uh, everything technical about the movie from from the filmmaking to the music, everything is firing on all cylinders. And I I think that feeling of having true creative freedom with a giant tentpole character comes through in the movie. And and I like that. I like seeing creators given such a wide range to play with something that that as far as pop culture is concerned is incredibly sacred. It's Batman. We all love Batman and Batman's important. And Tim Burton got to make a movie where he could do whatever he wanted to do with Batman. And that's really, really exciting to me. They're there to the point where he didn't have to change things to appease, you know, mcdonald's happy meal promotions and stuff like he got to do what he wanted to do and by that account i think whenever you do that it's going to alienate people because you're not making something that's made for everyone but that's kind of why i love batman returns it's not going to be for everyone but i think for the people that it's for it really really is going to hit the mark oh totally and i think you know you mentioned how this acts as a standalone movie. I think DC is leaning more towards that, even if the characters will continue in their roles and things will be sequels, because you have the fact that they did Justice League, they did Batman versus Superman, and it seemed like they were trying to make this continuous universe in the same way that Marvel did. But, you know, while what Marvel is doing is amazing for totally different reasons, I think DC can go back to something like what they had in the late 80s and 90s with Batman because, 
you have Jason Momoa as Aquaman in Justice League, but then when they went into the Aquaman movie, it didn't really have anything to do with Justice League, which I think was the right move. And you have a movie that was pretty delightful at times in Shazam. So you have these characters that you can use and Matt Reeves is working on the Batman. Who knows if that ends up being a trilogy, but even if it is a trilogy, I think you can still go back to this time when they didn't feel the need to have everything tied together. And that really feels like the smart move for DC based on what characters they've been deciding to work with. Yeah, I I, I think the best thing for DC to do is to deliver things that Marvel or more specifically the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies can't do. Right. Um, they can't make... A movie and I have incredibly mixed feelings about whatever it's going to be but like the upcoming Todd Phillips Joker movie yeah that is something that Marvel will never you know under their Disney umbrella will never do it will never be a one-off no there is no intention for any kind of sequels it is a self-contained one-time story that has nothing to do with continuity that isn't directly based on any kind of established canon um I I want that. I like that in my superhero cinema. And even the the more mainstream DC stuff like Wonder Woman and Aquaman and Shazam, I think I think it's been very clear that okay, audiences will come to the interconnectivity of the Marvel Cinematic Universe because they figured out a way to basically make every movie under that umbrella feel like a sequel to the last one. Right. So it's not it, like, it's like the Spider-Man far from home movie that just came out. It's like, well, yes, that's Spider-Man two, but really it's a follow-up to Avengers Endgame for a lot of people. Yeah. Like, and, and that is incredible that they've been able to pull that off. But I think DC is better off doing going in the opposite direction of, you know, we have another wonder woman movie, coming out uh, next year, Wonder Woman 1984. And that, as far as I can tell, is not going to have anything to do with anything but Wonder Woman. Maybe there will be some cute nods here and there about interconnectivity, but otherwise it just has to worry about being the best Wonder Woman 1984 it can be and being distinct in that. And I like that about specifically the DC canon of characters and superhero cinemas. Like just, just do the one thing really, really well and do your version of it. And if people respond to it, great. If they don't, you can still say, well, this was my version. I didn't have to do a compromised, you know, thing that had to fit into every other thing that's going on in superhero cinema. And, and like I say again, I, I think that's one of the reasons why I keep coming back to Batman Returns is it is just its own thing that I can yeah. watch. I don't have to have any, you know, backstory about anything. I can just come to it and enjoy it. Enjoy how ridiculous and silly it is. Enjoy how beautiful it is. Enjoy how dark and, and sad it is. And then I can yeah. be done. I can walk away and not have to think about anything else regarding that movie other than that movie. It has all of the context that you need to understand that particular story. And I'm not saying that DC should, you know, never make another Justice League movie. But I don't think a Justice League movie needs to work in the same way that the Avengers movies do. You can just have these characters off doing their own thing and then you bring them together for a Justice League movie that introduces this, you know, massive worldwide threat or something like that. And then they go their separate ways, just like they do in all of the DC Justice League TV shows. You know, the animated ones seem to do that the best because mm -hmm. you can have these characters, especially Batman, off doing his own thing in Gotham. And then he gets called into the Justice League to go take care of this thing. And it has nothing to do with what was going on in Gotham. Yeah, I, I think it's that the MCU has found a way to take episodic storytelling and transfer that to the event blockbuster formula. Exactly. You know, with, with television, it's like, yeah, we can 
on a Justice League show, just have an episode that's just Flash and Green Lantern doing something because it's an episode. You know, next week, the whole team's going to be back. Yeah. Um, but with DC, like, like for example, this upcoming, uh, you know, uh, Matt Reeves, Robert Pattinson, Batman movie, I would be thrilled if it was like, that's all we're doing. That's going to be one time. Robert Pattinson's going to be Batman. He's not signed for eight movies or anything. Matt Reeves has a definitive take and a definitive story that he wants to tell with Batman and his universe. And they tell it. And when it's done, it's like, wow, that was a really good Batman story. It's not dangling any cliffhangers or post credits teasers or anything. It's just that was a great Batman story. If they want to come back and they have an idea to do it again, great. But it doesn't have to reference or uh, tie itself to anything else in the DC universe. It can just be its own thing like that excites me so much because, I mean, that was the standard for superhero cinema before the MCU came along. Um, But because the MCU worked so well. I think so many people have tried to replicate that model and none of them have worked. Yeah. (laughs) Like no film series has been able to do what the Marvel Cinematic Universe has done. Even ones that are still making film. I mean, the, the, the Godzilla movies are trying it and they're not working out. You know, Universal has tried to do it with their horror canon of characters. Everyone's trying to do it. And it's clear that Marvel just they have the secret formula And instead of trying to copy that, I would love, especially for DC, to say, well, then let's do something really singular and distinct that is going to separate itself from the pack. And we'll see. I mean, I I would love nothing more than to have the equivalent of another Batman Returns come out in my lifetime. I almost think they could do something like that with a live action Batman Beyond, because that's the one thing that I was thinking about as we were, you know, talking about what DC should do here. And I was like, okay, Batman Beyond, you just bring in, you know, even maybe bring back Ben Affleck for that, age him up a little, make him a grumpy old man, and then introduce this totally different world that doesn't need to tie into Wonder Woman, or anything like that. And because they went in a younger direction for Matt Reeves' Batman, I'm hoping that they won't feel the need to have that tie-in because it would be very weird to have Wonder Woman, Superman, The Flash, Aquaman going from interacting with a Batman of Ben Affleck's age to, oh, hey, suddenly Batman is like 20 years younger. (laughs) Right. No, absolutely. I, I don't want that stress put on filmmakers when they're trying to just do the best, you know, vision of a specific character that they're trying to do. Like, I I loved Aquaman because it was like, this is James Wan's Aquaman. Yeah. Like, this is his take on it. This is this is Patty Jenkins Wonder Woman, you know, and I want it to be Matt Reeves as Batman. I don't want it to have to feel that it needs to shave some of its edges off in order to, you know, fit into a particular groove with other stuff. Um, And Batman, I mean, I love Batman Beyond and the concept of it and everything. And I think it's something that you could sell to people as a film with just the concept. Clearly they were able to do it with the animated series. Um, And again, it doesn't have to be like, well, we got to have Michael Keaton or Ben Affleck play old Batman. It's like, no, I think just the, the idea itself is enough to work and to grasp people. And again, it could just be its own thing and allow, you know, find somebody with a really great vision of a Batman Beyond movie and just let them go do that thing and not have them worry about, well, I can't I can't add this thing in because there's this other movie in development that might come out in two years and I don't want to mess with its particular characters or story for fear of, you know, not aligning properly. Although... Now that you mentioned Michael Keaton in that role, I kind of want to see that because it would almost be like the nod that Spider-Man had by bringing J.K. Simmons back. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, don't get me it wrong. If they cast Michael Keaton, I would be there day one. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's really fun. It Again, it doesn't have to. It's just not necessary. Well, it just, it just doesn't have to mean that 
this is that version of Batman. It doesn't right. mean like, oh, well, then we're just acknowledging, you know, Tim Burton's Batman movies and that's in this world. It's like, no, that's just a really it's it's a meta nod basically mm-hmm. to the audience of like, you know, this is somebody who played Batman in the past. And that is what we're trying to do thematically with this is pass the torch onto something new and different. Um, yeah, I think that would be great. Yeah, well, I think that's a perfect place to wrap this up. And Drew, thank you so much for coming on to discuss Batman Returns. It has definitely been fun. And you'll be back on soon for something else, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. You'll have to have me on episode 200 to <laughs> keep the, the, the anniversary streak going. I'll let you know in about a year. <laughs> right? <laughs> but before we go, I want to let you all know about our Patreon. You can support Welcome to Geekdom through the $1 tier, or there is a $5 tier where you get to pick a topic of an episode for the podcast, and I will definitely have to cover it. You know, I've been doing a lot of movies here because, frankly, they're easier to get to. They're not as time-consuming as watching an entire TV show. But, you know, if someone wants me to cover something like The Office or Parks and Rec, which have been on my list to watch forever, you can sign up to support us through Patreon there and demand that I do that, finally. (laughs) (laughs) You could also find us at Geekdom Pod on Twitter, at Welcome to Geekdom on Instagram and Facebook. And as always, thank you all for listening, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.